Welcome to the AR-15 Podcast. AR-15 Podcast. This is the podcast about your favorite black rifle. This show is for you if you're building your first AR or you've been building ARs for years. There is something we can all do to take our black rifle to the next level. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. We're back with another episode of our Builder Series. Tonight, we're going to be talking about completing and assembling your upper receiver. But before we get started, um, we want to check in with our uh, co-host, Mike, and uh, see how you've been doing this last couple weeks. Mike, what's going on? Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me back. Uh, nothing much. Enjoying my weekend. It's a little rainy over here right now, but uh, did get a little bit of pistol shooting in um, with some out-of-town guests. One of them was from uh, Philadelphia, and um, he actually was... Uh, ex-army i believe he said he was in the regiment so it was pretty fun we got to do that check out a local gun range that just opened up but uh, that's about it for me what have you been up to you know i have been completing a uh, special build of my own i uh, actually received a barrel and uh, it was uh, highlighted on the uh, um, 6-5 timberwolf uh, group that uh uh, Mad Dog Weapon System, uh, I guess they, what, are the admins of the group. But uh, it's it's one of the new Wildcats that Mad Dog Weapon Systems is coming out. So it's a 6.5 Timberwolf. I uh, I built it on an Aero Precision uh, chassis. I've got a uh, barrel that they uh, machined for me. And uh, I've got some, some nice components. I'm going to get it to the range. I'm going to get it sighted in and... And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take it the task and see what I can get out of it in terms of performance. But I'm real excited about that. Um, awesome, that's pretty exciting. You know, other than that, you know, it's just tax season. I know that I've been covered up with uh, work, and uh, JD's been covered up with uh, you know, I guess the the routine of um, fundraising. So that's always really kind of a tough time for him. But so you know, that's kind of what we've been up to. Fair so. Enough. That being said, I think we can just jump right into the uh, topic for tonight, which is assembling the upper receiver. So we're three shows into the, the the series right now, and we covered the lower receiver in the last one. So, you know, I think from my perspective, the upper receiver is the more critical of the two pieces. And, you know, let me, let me just justify that. You know, in terms of the lower receiver, most of the parts are just kind of, you know, plug and play. You know, uh, regardless of what kind of trigger uh, assembly, fire control group you put into the rifle, you're basically just trying to line up your, you know, two trigger pins and all of your other springs to get it to work properly. And there's not a whole lot of playing with it. You know what I mean, Mike? Uh, it's not yeah. like you're a custom gunsmith uh, tackling a 1911 build where you might have to do some really fine metal work to get some parts mated together the way you want. Um, so I think it's a lot more forgiving in the lower, whereas because all of the action is in the upper, and uh, I think a lot of people strive for accuracy or you know some other performance characteristic i think that's where the attention is um i guess in my estimate properly 
plays, the, you know, the attention to detail and assembling the upper receiver, because I think that's really where um, more things that can more things can go wrong that need to be addressed than perhaps anywhere else in the rifle. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I have full disclosure, right, full transparency. I have limited experience in my my personal build capability, but I've had several people who are getting into their first rifle ask me, you know, where should I spend my money? And that very question came up about should I get a lower receiver that's blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I, I told him, I said, look, my personal opinion and, you know, there's a million opinions, a billion opinions out there. But I said, if for my money, I don't really care what the lower receiver is that much as long as the parts fit. Like as long as it's spec'd properly so that like magazines, regular magazines fit and the, you know, the the components work properly because to your point, the actual, all of the, all of the, all the magic happens in the upper receiver. That's where all of the heavy stress parts are going to be as far as containing the explosion and, um, you know, where the, the metallurgy even matters more because it's actually exposed to heat and gas and all that other stuff. So I, I definitely agree that if you're going to do this, particularly on a budget, you have to select where you're going to put your chips. The upper receiver would be where it's at. So, you know, I think we're going to try to approach this in as methodical a fashion as we can. Um, you know, I think uh, going back to our format in the last episode, we start off with, you know, some considerations uh, when it comes to the upper receiver. So, you know, I think first and foremost, um, you know, we're, we're talking about some pretty non- there's not a lot of latitude when it comes to the upper receiver. Um, you know, there are traditionally two commonly seen grades of material, aluminum. Uh, the coatings are really pretty sedate. There's not a great deal of latitude in what uh, the aluminum is, how, how it's coated. Uh, you have, you know, pretty standardized um, um, anodizing uh you have pretty standardized seracoding. Um, there's not really a whole lot of other stuff going on in terms of the material selection that you have for your upper receiver. Um, you know, traditionally we're seeing forged or billet receivers. Um, and, you know, once again, I think we've covered the, the elements in those two at length. So in terms of construction, we're generally seeing the forged or billet receivers. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, as we've talked about before, the same considerations uh, go into which direction you're going. But, you know, I think at this point, uh, you're really probably going to be drawn more into a choice based on what your lower receiver is. Hey Mike, can you mute that? I don't know what that is, but it's it sounds like road noise. Road noise. It's uh, some kind of a shh. Yeah, it's gone. Now. Okay, hang on one second. So, in terms of the form of your upper receiver, you know, we all have seen, and many are, are familiar, or more familiar with the flat top uppers. I'm probably going to get chastised by somebody, but I I think that these are. Traditionally, in terms of what the military put into play, the A3 uh, rifles that were sporting the flat top uppers. You know, of course, I was in the in the military back when it was uh, the A2, and so I'm familiar with the A2 
uh, upper receiver in terms of um, how the rear side assembly and uh, the receiver is assembled with a hand hold or uh, I don't know what you call the thing um, that's at the top of the rifle. Um, and of course, you know, we have the A ones. There's, there's a big push in, um, I think a lot of circles to get, uh, more A1 upper receivers and more period correct A1 upper receivers available to allow people to go back and do some of the retro builds, uh, that, uh, I think we're seeing on the market. And Brown Alice came out with the whole line of retro rifles using period correct a1 upper receivers so in terms of the form uh, i think that you can really um, spend more of your time in this space trying to determine what form you're going to use for the particular rifle you're going to build and of course if you're going to go with some retro or some clone you're going to be driven very specifically in terms of what it is you're trying to to mirror um, but other than that i think that really in terms of the upper receiver it is such a I guess a fundamentally unsexy component that there just really isn't a lot to it. Um, you know, in terms of the upper receiver, I would say that you're probably going to spend more time considering the barrel that you're going to mate to the upper receiver. And, you know, barrels, uh, you can have an entire show and all of the intricacies that come into play with barrels. You know, I've just, you know, followed along as uh, Mad Dog uh, machined the barrel that uh, they sent me and, you know, followed along closely with everything that they put into it. So from from my perspective, that is probably where more of your energy needs to be placed when we're assembling the upper receiver. And, of course, you know, you have uh, the appropriate chamber that you need to decide upon. And that drives a great many other considerations at the outset. But, you know, assuming that you're going to go with the traditional 223-556 rifle, even at that, you still have some chamber options that may not be necessarily obvious to you. Of course, uh, 223 Wild is an example of one of those. Um, But there are a few other custom chamberings that are available in the market, not as common as the wild, uh, but that are not a traditional 223 chambering or a 556 chambering. And your choice of those can um, help address some of the performance needs you might have for your new build. Um, also, we have some considerations when it comes to the materials that you're going to use. Uh, there's some considerations in terms of uh, how the um, the bore or how the the uh, the chamber is going to be lined. There are some options with regard to that. Um, you have options in terms of how your rifling is imparted on the barrel. Um, you have some options in terms of the barrel's coating itself, uh, from a, a simple uh, parkerizing all the way to a very complex, um, what is it, uh, nitro carburizing that's uh, nitrided barrels, uh, um, and all manner of things in between. Um, so, uh, 
I think really when it comes down to assembling the upper receiver, that's where more of your attention needs to be placed. Um, but of course, how you arrive at your particular barrels configuration is going to be driven by some of the things that we talked about in the first couple of episodes. So I won't belabor the fact. And, and, you know, certainly if you, if you have an interest, let us know if you'd like us to go ahead and add a show specifically touching on barrels after we get our builder series wrapped up and we'll put one of those in the queue. Um, so, I think after we've kind of talked about those two principal considerations, uh, I think the next consideration is is really preparing your upper receiver. Um, so, Mike, have you have you assembled any rifles to the point where you've taken a um, parted out upper receiver and put it all together yourself? No, not entirely. I'm I've put some of the components together with um, you know. Or rather, I assisted someone else who was doing it. So I've seen it done. I've never done it for a rifle that I was building, but I've I've watched the process occur. But something that you brought up that I think is, uh, you know, for my part, very interesting that maybe you can expound on is the preparation part of it. You know, what are you looking for when you prepare it? I mean, are you looking for defects or are you trying to affect some sort of change before you actually start assembling the, the receiver for yourself? <clears throat> Well, so if I'm going to prepare a receiver, I mean, I think the first part, like you said, is the inspection component. You know, I, I want to make sure that the threads um, on the uh, receiver where I'm going to um, connect the barrel to the receiver and and tighten down the barrel nut are um, really well machined, that they're clean, that there's not any debris in there, that there's no, um, I don't know, chunks of metal. I could have told you an hour ago what I was looking for in terms of the specific word for a burr. That's what it is, a burr, no burrs. You want to make sure that, you know, there's there's nothing that uh, looks like a deformation or a malformation in the threads. Um, you know, certainly if the threads had any, you know, part of them uh, chipped away or missing that might indicate some weakness in the threads, uh, you w- wouldn't want to proceed i think at that point obviously you're going to look for cracks you're going to look for any other malformations in the actual receiver itself uh, anything that might have been caused by um i don't know uh, a force or pressure uh, applied at you know some weak point in the receiver to make sure that there's nothing that's going to uh, impede the proper function of the receiver itself and having a bolt slide through the receiver or having a barrel mate to the receiver um you know, certainly uh, when you begin to assemble the um, uh, parts to the receiver, you're talking about the forward assist and you're talking about the um, dust cover. Uh, if there is some component there that's out of spec, it's going to be readily apparent. Um, you've got a drift pin to throw in on the forward assist. Um, you've also got some holes that are machined for a I guess it's a hinge pin for the dust cover. Um, and if something in that uh, part of the receiver is out of spec, you're going to know it almost immediately. Um, you know, we're getting to a point more and more where these components are not uh, in their traditional form. I've seen dust covers that don't rely on a 
hinge pin to connect. They basically snap in using a, another form factor. And I think it's kind of interesting that people are still looking at these parts of a rifle and trying to become innovative and uh, uh, provide n- more choices to consumers, more choices to people who are building their own rifles. But um, what else? On the on the Ford Assist, we're seeing many companies come in and instead of putting drift pins, which you know you have an opportunity to you know rake a a punch across your very finely finished upper receiver, you know they're replacing those with uh, threaded pins that you know basically uh, mate into the receiver with you know nothing more than an Allen wrench, which is really rather convenient. I think it's an excellent way to go. Um, you know, and in terms of, you know, the next part cleaning, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen a receiver that I would say needed to be cleaned, but I think it makes sense. You know, certainly if you're going to treat the threads of your receiver, uh, with a, you know, any, uh, of a number of components to make sure that you assemble, uh, or mate the the barrel to it properly. Uh, there may be a need for some cleaning. You know, I'm kind of a big fan of brake cleaner. I'm also a big fan of toothbrushes and um, half a dozen you know uh, firearms cleaning products that I have sitting in the garage. I don't have any particular favorite. It's usually the one that's closest at hand. But you know, I, I think with those kinds of considerations. You can probably clean anything that you're going to encounter on your receiver pretty easily. And there may be some folks out there that are, you know, white glove, white room level uh, attention to detail when it comes to cleaning their items. But I wouldn't think that that's really something you'd need to put that much care into. Um, You know, I think one of the things that I've come to believe in terms of preparing the upper uh, is the idea that, in terms of um, trying to eke uh, just a little more accuracy out of the rifle, that it does seem that the use of a lapping tool can be of benefit. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know for certain. Uh, I think it's a luxury item. But, you know, if you're going to talk about the imperfections of, you know, machining and mating a barrel to a surface that might be imprecise. Um, anything that you could do to make it precise, I think would make for a truer mating surface. Uh, I put a link in the show me, notes. I, Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you there. Um, so for beginners, when you're talking about the inspection part, looking for burrs, can you expound on that? What if you do actually find, you know, maybe you're on a budget, maybe you purchased a lower receiver that's not exactly um, showman qual- show showroom quality perhaps do you are there considerations regarding the finish you mentioned the finish with the pins on the on the dust cover and pro- potentially scarring the finish if you discover burrs do you have any recommendations or words of wisdom for for filing those or honing those off and then it's you know in, in a manner that doesn't damage the receiver's finish you know really i think when it comes down to it um, in terms of where you're likely to find something like that, uh, it, it would kind of like, let's say you have a, a burr that's um, inside of the, the holes for your drift pins on your Ford Assist. You know, there is a, a void inside that space where your Ford Assist is going to go. I think that's where you're going to see a burr. 
and I think that you can, you know, just easily remove it with, you know, a metal implement uh, of your choosing, uh, and it's not going to mar the exterior finish. You know, certainly, I think what we're trying to do is make sure that a a drift pin will go through without uh, encountering any difficulty um, or uh, requiring you to exert enough force to, you know, deform the the receiver. Um, but we also don't want a piece of metal or a material, any material inside that space that is going to bind on your forward assist. Um, you know, I would have to be a pretty big burr, I think, to cause your forward assist to jam, but you know, who wants to think that that's going to happen at all? So, um, you know, in terms of the threads, you know, if there's any material left over on the threads, you know, honestly, I, I've never seen it and I can't imagine it happening very often, just in simple quality control. I think somebody would figure that out, but if by some chance you received a, uh, an upper receiver that had a burr in the threads where you're going to attach your barrel nut, um, you know, I'd see if it's just, I don't know, excess material that might not have been removed. Um, you know, material that's laying in one of the threads uh, that, you know, in terms of, a, uh, you know, it being there after you coded the receiver or, you know, finished the receiver, maybe it was, I don't know, something adhered to it. Um, it was the coating itself that made it adhere. In terms of any debris that might be in a thread, um, if it were there when the receiver were finished, uh, perhaps the, it might be adhered to the, the uh, threads themselves because of the finishing process. It may just be a function of something that needs to be brushed out of the threads. If you actually have a part of the thread that has detached and is bent into, um, I guess, the the valley of a thread. I'm no machinist, so I don't know what that part of the thread is called. You know, I think what you're looking at is a, you know, defect in the material or the quality of the construction. And I think at that point you should have your, um, attention raised to the point that you may want to consider sending the receiver back. Um, you know, uh, people talk about finding burrs inside barrels when, you know, gas ports are drilled at the factory and they look at them at home. And, you know, I, I can't say that you're not going to find something that doesn't have a piece of human error. But I think what you want to look for is whether or not there is something in that space that indicates compromised integrity. If the integrity of your threads are compromised, I wouldn't risk tightening down a barrel nut um, and trying to hold a receiver to the the barrel uh, without the thought that perhaps the rest of the threads or some other component of the threads are going to give way at a critical moment. Um, so, to me, from from my you know, what, what my opinion and my experience tells me that. Um, if you see something like that, looking for a compromise is the first thing, and that, I think, is only followed by returning the product. I don't, I don't think that there's redemption if you find you know, your threads coming apart or if there's enough of a defect in your upper receiver for you know, there to be voids in the material that might you know, widen or expand. Things like that just mean that it's an awful product itself. That's good to know because I think 
um, you know, depending on, on the luck of the draw, if that were to happen to somebody, especially for someone on the lower end of the experience spectrum like myself, the first inclination might be, well, am I being too picky? Maybe I could just file that down or mm-hmm. something like that. Maybe, you know, you just think to yourself, well, that doesn't look like that much of an error and I don't want to raise a stink with the manufacturer. Let me see if I could just rub it off with a, with a metal file or something like that. But, you know, with that much experience saying, look, you might not be able to get your, your equipment to come apart afterwards if you bind it to it or it may fail at a critical moment. That's, that's really helpful advice to know, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I think what it really comes down to is the idea that, look, it's aluminum. It's not, it's not steel. You know what I mean? You can't add to aluminum. They give you a chunk. You mill down from that core chunk until you get your finished product. But if there's anything less than that, you know, full receiver there, that's a defect. You know, you, you can't, you know, weld a piece of aluminum to your, you know, rifle, rethread it, polish it, refinish it, and be done. You know, uh, old machine guns, old Brownings, you know, metal uh, firearms, you know, they cut them with torches to demill them well you can go back and weld them together and they will work just fine if the guy doing the work is a professional the aluminum's not that way you know if you were to find a, a forging uh, that had a void in it you know a bubble that occurred at some point you know i don't think it would even get past quality control but let's just say it did I send it back. I don't think that there's any redemption for something that has that big a, a mistake, a, that big a defect in the actual receiver itself. The note itself. Don't try to weld anything onto my receiver. <laughs> um, it's good to know. You know the idea of honing or lapping um, the uh, the face of the receiver that's going to mate with your barrel extension. You know, I think it's really based on the idea that with the proper tool, if I can get that face as true as possible, then I'm going to have it more accurately mate to the barrel extension. And by extension, when the barrel nut essentially clamps onto the lip of the barrel extension, threading onto the face of the upper receiver, I'm mating those two components at that you know proper torque in as true a fashion as i can get and i think that like i said it's a luxury it's not a necessity but if you are going to try for the voodoo that is accuracy i think this is one of the places that you may want to go and the lapping tools a 30 40 dollar tool uh, you'll need something to make it spin, so you're looking at a drill. Most people have drills. That's not a big thing in many instances. You also need a compound that's going to allow you to actually remove the material on the receiver. So some kind of a lapping, I think it's a paste, uh, uh, whatever the, the compound is. I, ha- I have it in the, the two grades that I'm supposed to. So... That is one of the things that I think you could use to prepare an upper receiver uh, to perhaps eke some performance. And I'm sure someone will go out there and, you know, tell you that it's absolutely unnecessary. And there are some people that would swear by it and tell you you're a fool to not do it and everybody else stands somewhere in the middle. 
Um, so I think that's really kind of the, the elements of preparing the upper that you're going to be considering. Um, you know, really in terms of the barrel, it's one of those components that I think there's very little you can do to prepare it. Um, perhaps uh, clean the barrel extension so that in mating the receiver to the barrel, uh, you have as debris-free a field as you can possibly get. Um, at the end of the day, you're still shooting very dirty, high-powered explosives out of a rifle. So, you know, it's not going to stay pristine forever. Um, let's see. So installing the upper receiver components, you know, is there an order? I don't think so. I don't think there's an order. I mean, you're basically talking about a dust cover and you're basically talking about a, uh, a Ford assist. You know, if you get a slick side upper, uh, then no Ford assist. And I think there's even a version of the a one upper receiver that doesn't have a dust cover. So, um, those have very little in the way of extra components. When you go into that space where you're trying to put um, the rear side assemblies into the A1 or A2 upper receivers, you have very intricate piecework that needs to go into place. Uh, there isn't uh, a priority of which assembly you install first uh, over any other, but, you know, certainly... Uh, that assembly is a tricky one. Uh, I watched a couple of YouTube videos. It went together really easily for me. I've built an A1 uh, rear side assembly and an A2 rear side assembly. It's it's not it's not like you're trying to send you know a rocket to the moon. So don't let it intimidate you. It's just a function of understanding what you need to do and making sure that you have the tools that you need to get it done properly. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if you're gonna you know, send a detentor, a spring across a room. So you might want to get extras if you're going to do any of the uh, rear side assemblies. Um, you know, I think protecting the lower is an important part. Uh, once again, blue painter's tape is, uh, I think, uh, your best friend. I mean, if you have black rifle disease and you're going to put a lot of these together, blue painter's tape, I think, is your best friend. Um you know, in terms of what you're worried about, I would say you're worried about uh, marring the surface with any of the drift pins. And so that's really the only thing that you need to worry about is those places where you're going to be driving a pin. Um, let's see. Interesting solutions or shortcuts. You know, I think really when it comes down to it, uh, securing the Ford Assist with a threaded pin, uh, like you're seeing in some of the... Um, Forged, or I mean the uh, the billet set, some of the custom sets. That's a really nice accessory, uh, a really nice feature. Um, in terms of shortcuts per se, I can't say that I I, I really know of any. Uh, it's kind of a laborious process, and it's one that is going to require you to have some really, I don't know, some attention to detail to make sure you get it right. And we'll, we'll kind of go into that uh, as we proceed here, but. Um, so I think that pretty much covers, you know, the upper receiver components, your Ford assist, your dust cover and your, um, rear side assembly. If, uh, you have a upper receiver that needs that. Um, I think the next thing to cover is really what I would consider the, the most important part of assembling the rifle after you get your upper receiver and it's, uh, 
attendant parts installed, uh, you want to go through the process of getting your barrel installed. Um, you know, I have listened to a number of people talk about what they believe is the proper way to do things like uh, install the barrel nut or the muzzle device on a barrel because of the way that the barrel extension is mated to the barrel. You know, it's a tough one because I think a properly installed barrel extension is unlikely to give you any difficulty using the common tools available to you. Uh, I have a Geisley reaction rod that I use to mate my receivers and barrels. I've used, uh, I think it's a pretty standardized kind of a hinged clamshell device that goes over the receiver that many people start out with. Um, it has an insert that protects the form of the upper receiver to make sure that it doesn't deform. Uh, the device, you know, wraps around the exterior of the receiver and then you put that into a vise and it keeps the, the end of the receiver free and available so you can thread on the barrel nut and tighten down the barrel to it. Um, and, and I've also got, uh, what are they? Uh, barrel. It's a barrel vise. It's basically two chunks of aluminum with uh, little rubber pads that they have a scallop in them that you can put your barrel in. And so when you tighten down the um, vise, it basically mashes the two sides of this um, device on either side of the barrel. And so I have a free chunk of barrel out on one end and the free chunk of barrel out on the other end. And so I'm holding the barrel itself by, you know, its midpoint. And I'm not worried about whether or not I'm going to deform the um, barrel extension. So I think my preferred way of doing it just because it's easy and simple is to use the reaction rod that I have from Geisley. Um, let's see. You know, there are two things that I think are worth looking at. One of them is anti-seize material. Essentially, you're looking at something, it's a, uh, I think, a, uh, a grease I think um, I have an anti-seize, a tube of anti-seize material that's got molybdenum in it and a a base uh, of some petroleum product. And the idea is that in putting it around your um, threads, your barrel nut's going to turn very simply and not bind on any part of the threads. And, you know, if you have a barrel nut that binds or if you cross thread your barrel nut i mean i think you've destroyed at that point your upper receiver i don't think that there's any hope of going back you know my opinion would be that you'd probably want to go out and get a new one if you cross threaded it or stripped it um so i think anti-seize is something to consider i have been seeing more and more people talk about loctite i've never used loctite and you know i'm not sure where I stand on it. And of course, the people that have talked about it are people that are expert builders, and I wouldn't doubt them at all. But, you know, I consider on one hand, if I'm using an anti-seize compound, can I use Loctite? Is there something in the material that I'm using to prevent seizing that's going to make the Loctite uh, not work as well? Uh, so does that mean that I have to thread on the barrel nut without the anti-seize component? 
uh, and rely on Loctite to, I don't know, provide some nominal lubrication in that part of the assembly. Uh, you know, in terms of whether it's of any value, you know, I, I haven't disassembled a rifle and I've disassembled and rebuilt many of my own. I haven't disassembled a rifle where the barrel nut had come loose, where I didn't have to apply, you know, at least as much starting force to, you know, get it moving as I applied to secure it in place. And so nothing jumps out at me and says that Loctite is necessary. That's not to say it's not a good idea. So, um, you know, the torque specifications for a barrel, I think, are probably not something easy for the home builder to find. I think there's anecdotal evidence. I think people have talked a lot about what it should be. Uh, they've spoken of it in terms of a range. I mean, I don't know that there's a place where, you know, Eugene Stoner wrote down... X many foot-pounds of torque on a barrel nut makes it right. But, you know, maybe he has, and I'm just not that diligent at looking into it. The conventional wisdom I've arrived at, based on multiple sources, uh, is 35 foot-pounds minimum of torque. And so what I have been told, what I've learned, what I've read, what I've come to understand is that if you can torque your rifle to the minimum spec and then roll the barrel nut forward or advance the barrel nut enough for the next um, indent to properly index so that you can insert your gas tube, that is sufficient. So it's typically over the minimum, but that's something to keep in mind that you're going to at least Put the minimum force on, and then you're going to roll it over till the barrel nut indexes to the next spot for your gas tube. Unless you have an upper that doesn't require you to do that, which my arrow build doesn't, which is really nice. But it's a proprietary handguard, proprietary barrel nut, proprietary mounting. So that's an uncommon occurrence, not a common one. You know, something I've also come to learn is that there is a very specific formula that one has to use to make sure that you're applying the proper minimum. And so I'm going to give you an example of this. The formula I've put in the show notes, I'm not going to sit here and try to describe it to you, but essentially when I take a torque wrench and they've set the measurement, the torque on it. It's based on the center of the drive on that torque wrench and the point at which you're going to hold it. They're calibrating it to that specific space. Now, if it was a socket that was on the end of my torque wrench, the middle of that socket is going to be the middle of the bolt, which is the middle of the, the stem coming off of that bolt head that's going into whatever I'm tightening down. And so my torque spec should be proper based on how it's calibrated. But as many of you know, and some of you may not, every barrel I've ever assembled requires an extension of some sort. An armor's tool, a specific barrel nut wrench, a device that goes into a proprietary set of teeth, whatever the case may be. But the center of that extension going to the center of the drive is extra distance. And so that modifies the length of your torque wrench. And 
takes it out of the proper calibrated range. And so, for an example, the minimum uh, torque of 35 pounds, 35 foot-pounds on a an AR, because of my barrel extension and the way it was created for my latest aero precision build when I put the calculation in, in order to reach the minimum, Mike, I had to have 38 foot-pounds. So if I torqued it, without doing the calculation to just 35 foot-pounds, I would not have torqued it enough to reach a minimum. It would have been below the minimum. So in order to get it to the same 35 foot-pounds on that calibrated torque wrench with the barrel extension, I had to push it up to 38, 38 point something foot-pounds. So, you know, I think it bears consideration. You should think about how those particular uh, elements are going to impact what you do to, I guess, tighten down your barrel nut to the proper torque specification. Now, certainly, whoever is going to tell you a uh, torque spec for their particular product, follow that specification. Use what they tell you to use. Don't listen to the anecdotal uh, evidence that you hear. Um, and if you have someone that you trust that has that knowledge base and skill set, seek them out and see what they say. Um, you know, we talked about basically rolling the barrel nut so that it is properly indexed to the next notch for your gas tube. There is a very easy to use alignment gauge that Brownell sells. It fits into the tip of your gas key on your bolt carrier group, and it allows you to basically slide your bolt forward and see if anything is out of alignment between, you know, any of the components of a D-ring that can twist out of alignment or the barrel nut itself not being in alignment and causing something to impede that gauge. And the reason that you don't want something to interfere with the gauge is that conversely, if you're trying to push a gas tube through there, Anything that might impede its true path might be deviating it from its normal position where it would normally lie, and it could be putting an angle on it or you know putting a force on it that would bend it. Um, and you have one of two things. You have either the gas tube that's not going to mate properly to the gas key and repeated cycles um, are going to cause, I think, uh, inappropriate wear. I think you also have the potential of having a gas tube rub on the side of a barrel nut and potentially have a breach, which, of course, renders your rifle uh, essentially a single-shot rifle. So I, I think it – go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, the tool that you were saying um, that you've seen from Brownells to check that alignment, is that a visual inspection tool or is it something that you pass through and if, uh, if it actually goes through properly, then you know it's, it's, it's true? It's if it goes through properly. It basically it just it's the same diameter as your gas tube as it travels forward through your actual device. I mean, as it for travels forward through your um, upper receiver, you will sense, you'll detect, you will feel that you know moment of contact. It's going to slow it or impede it or, you know, flat out stop it if it's that far out of alignment. But you will be able to tell by feel alone whether or not you have 
absolute freedom of movement or not. And, you know, honestly, at $6, uh, I don't think I would classify it as a uh, luxury tool. I would classify it as a necessity. It's just a very simple, easy way to do it. Now, you could find another, you know, straight piece of metal that's of the proper diameter, fashion it yourself to the proper length and stick it in your gas key. And you're at the same place, but you know, at six dollars, I don't know. I'd rather. No, I think you're this. right for that kind of price. I mean, don't you know to be penny wise and pound foolish? You know, you mentioned shortcuts earlier. I mean, I suppose you could find something that's of similar dimensions, but why? After you presumably you have the funds to purchase all the parts that we're talking about anyway. So at that particular juncture, you know the. The aggregate cost of an extra six bucks to make sure that you don't put the gas the gas system in out of play or out of alignment, I think, is a fair amount of quality control investment. Yeah, um, six bucks or you mess with your rifle. <laughs> you know, and and really, I think when it comes down to it, um, I I think this is where the magic happens. You know, I think I believe that an improperly undertorqued uh, barrel nut or an improperly over-torqued barrel nut can affect accuracy. I don't have any empirical data that would support that. That's the inference that I've drawn from the many people I've talked to. So torque is important. At the same time, this is where you're going to secure the barrel nut, the one component that will hold your handguard the component that is going to secure the barrel where your you know, small explosions are taking place to the receiver, uh, which is where your bolt is going to travel. You know, I think it, it, it just is worthwhile to make sure that when you put these together, you take your time, you get everything lined up the way it's supposed to be. You invest in the necessary tools like a torque wrench. I think a torque wrench is a necessary tool. Um, and you don't have to pay for it. I think you can go to what any chief's auto parts and probably rent a torque wrench for the afternoon for a nominal fee. And they'll be happy to let you walk out the door with that tool. So if you're a one and done builder, then by golly, go ahead and do that. Um, uh, you know, from this point forward, I think most everything else you're going to do is just about assembly. So, I don't think that you should worry at this point, you know, oh my goodness, this is going to be too much. I I just am not going to go this far. Because really, when you get to this point, I think it's really smooth sailing. Um, You know, I think the next element to think about or to talk about are a gas block and gas tube. You know, I think opinions are all over the place in terms of, what you want to do with this part of your build, you know, certainly there are some options that allow you to deviate from the traditional gas tube. Uh, for instance, Adam's Arms has a kit that allows you to turn your rifle into a piston rifle. It's very easy to install. And at this point, uh, this is where you would go. Certainly your, your choice of barrel nut and handguard are driven by some of your other accessories. So for instance, if you're absolutely married to a given gas block 
um, a low profile handguard may not, you know, work with that particular uh, high profile gas block. Uh, certain uh, barrel nuts don't work with the Adams Arms um, piston kit because uh, you're driving a rod through the uh, receiver and the same place that you're driving your, uh, your, your placing or installing your gas tube. And so some of the barrel nuts impede the function of that component. So, uh, you know, it goes back into planning and you have to have some forethought at this point into how you're going to have your rifle assembled so that compatibility isn't the thing that stops you halfway through your build. Um, but, you know, just in terms of a traditional gas block and gas tube, um, I'm going to go over those elements alone and and not complicated by discussing all of the other options that may be available. Um, you know, when it comes to my comfort level, I would rather either get a barrel that has a pinned you know, A2 front sight base or go with a barrel that's smooth and doesn't do that because I'm not going to try to drill holes uh, that I can pin uh, a front sight base through. I'm going to either clamp something on or I'm going to buy a rifle that has it already there. Um, in terms of aligning a gas block, you know, what I often do is go in with a paper clip, bend the end, and I catch the paper clip inside the gas block's um, gas port, and I'll bend it right at the point where it uh, goes past the, I guess, the rearward most part of the gas block so that I can see what the distance is. And then I will use that as a gauge on my barrel to figure out where the back of my barrel's gas port is going to be aligned with the back of the gas block's gas port. And then I can mark the barrel, whether it's with pencil or if I can figure out what that dimension is. I have a number of shims that um, I use for that purpose. Um, and uh, in talking with the guys at Mad Dog, uh, feeler gauges, you know, not a machinist here. So, you know, who'd have thought there's a whole set of tools that actually do the very same thing. But um, just using that very simple method allows me to get a really good uh, line on where the, the gas ports are going to begin to line up. And then from there, I basically just put some masking tape or blue painter's tape on the back of my gas block and, and around the barrel just, you know, behind the, the shoulder there. And I mark the center points. And so I slide on my gas block. I uh, push it to the proper distance from the shoulder. I align the, the uh, top dead center by uh, pencil mark of the two pieces of painter's tape. And that's as far as I go. Now, I'm sure that there are other much more precise mechanical means of aligning the two. But, you know, from every time I've built a rifle and every time I have fired a rifle using that methodology, I've never been dissatisfied. That doesn't mean it's the best. It doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean anything other than that seems to work for me. But I think for a first time build, I don't know that there's anything better. Um, now, 
In terms of securing the gas block, I've uh, I've heard a machinist talk about clamps being the appropriate or best way to secure a gas block because the clamped gas blocks wrap more surface area around the barrel that touches the barrel and creates points of friction that prevent the gas block from rotating left or right or moving forward or aft from that spot where you have it rest when installed. And I've had other people swear by barrels that are dimpled using set screws. You know, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I'm happy with both. So however it is that you decide to go, I think that you're going to be fine. I would say that I believe in using Loctite on my gas block screws. So I do that with every one I put together. A little bit of blue Loctite, put it in the threads, and I'll I'll tighten down like on a three index pin gas block. I'll tighten all three down. Then I'll go back and I'll loosen one, install the Loctite, and then retighten it. And I'll repeat that until I have all of them Loctited. Um, you know, really after that, you know, the installation of your gas tube is the piece that's, you know, the trickier part here. And the only reason that is, is that most gas blocks are not square or squared up. So they don't lay down perfectly on a bench. And so when you get your, um, gas tube roll pin and your, you know, pin starter and your hammer out and you start trying to drive that pin, uh, invariably, it's a little tricky. It's like any one of those functions that requires you to have three or four hands and you only have the two. So you got to figure out a way to, you know, rest it on something and twist it here and hold it there. And it begins to be a pain. Now, there are, um, uh, what is it, Delrin blocks that are cut for you to kind of rest your gas block in them. And it provide a secure place for you to do that uh, pen installation. I've, I've never invested in one of those because I've been able to do well enough without one. So Mike, you look pensive there. Anything that you want to, you want to go over before we move on to the next little beast here? Actually, I'm soaking that in because the gas block is something that actually perplexes me. Um, especially when I've started looking into um, my first rifle and then there's always the, okay, what length should it be and how does it fit together? So uh, with my first rifle, I bought it actually fully assembled and I took my rifle to a smith to have them change out some components like the handguard and, you know, trigger and things like that. And I watched them do it. So I, I, I can visualize some of what you're saying, but uh, as someone who's never actually laid hands on any of this stuff before, it sounds rather uh, complex, especially if you don't have... Um, the uh, the tools to do it, and you've never actually performed it yourself. So, well, I want uh, you I want you to know sounds like that a big undertaking. The the preliminary tools that I pointed out for aligning the gas block are a paper clip, masking tape, and a pencil. In I terms, meant as a whole, and, the- well, no, <laughs> as a whole. And then the next most important thing that I pointed out was an Allen wrench, which I think. If anybody's ever built Ikea furniture, they probably have a drawer full of Allen wrenches. But, you know, I mean, it. I don't think it's a hard part of the build to do. Now, um, you know, 
drift pin. You know, back when I first started doing this, I didn't have pin holders, um, starter punches. I didn't have any of the, the fancy accessories. I just had punches. And so what I would do is I would use a little bit of that painter's tape. I'd fold it around the tip of my punch and the tip of the pen. And so it'd just be a little flag of painter's tape sitting there on the end. And that is how I would secure the two together. Because as anybody who's ever tried to hold a pen punch and hold a pen and hold a hammer realizes you don't have three hands. But by using that tape, it basically secured the pen to the punch. And then I had a much easier time of driving them. So even at that, you know, you can go to a Home Depot and get a, you know, $10 set of punches really easy. Um, You know, I think most people have a hammer. If you have a picture in your apartment or your home, you probably have a hammer. So I don't think this is this is a difficult aspect of it. And and I think some people might be intimidated by it. I don't know why. I, d- I never thought it was a particularly difficult part of it. Be careful. You may convince me I can do this. Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to. And, you know, <laughs> you may very well have under your belt more rifles than J.D. does in a very short order. So <laughs> I'm never going to let him live that down, by the way, if that actually comes to pass. That, that's true. I wouldn't, I, I would expect nothing less. So, <laughs> you know, I think the next piece really after you've, you've assembled, uh, you've mated your receiver and you've mated your barrel, your receiver and your barrel are now mated. You've, you know, installed and secured your barrel nut. You've installed your, um, gas block and your gas tube, you know, What's the next piece that you're going to have to to, to put into the assembly? That's going to be your handguard. Now, if you're going to go with a free float handguard, um, it is more likely than not, I believe, at this point, that your barrel nut was part of the set. There are some uh, handguards, uh, forends, that are free floating that mate to the traditional you know, mill spec barrel nut. And so that's not a, a big worry at this point. Um, certainly if you've had to put the D ring and the spring assembly and, you know, the, the clamp on there to secure that assembly, the D ring assembly to your, um, barrel nut, you're going to have needed a, you know, a handguard cap, uh, mounted behind your, uh, gas block in order to secure your uh, two-part drop-in handguard. You know the traditional handguard that we see on an A2 or an old A1. You know were installed in that fashion. They were dropped in, and the D-ring was pulled rearward, and they locked into place in the front um, handguard cap, and they were secured in place. But they're not free floating, and so you know whatever handguard approach you take uh, that's going to drive your barrel nut choice or force your barrel nut choice um in terms of the handguards you know considerations you know once again you know it's materials and features so you know back the first couple of rifles i built had quad rails Uh, at some point the rails began to get thinner then they began to find a point where they didn't have rails on every, you know, aspect of them. And then someone figured out that it was easier to create some, you know, 
defining standard for attachment points rather than to have every manufacturer of a handguard manufacture their own proprietary screws and um, lengths of rail to attach the side of their particular handguard. And so uh, you have the M-Lock and the key mod that basically uh, garner the most attention and become front and center. And, you know, of course, some people think that key mod as a form factor is really struggling at this point. You know, I don't know that that's the case or not. Uh, I do know that people tend to, you know, like what they like. And, you know, regardless of whether this is the Betamax versus VHS debate, um, you're still going to have some guys that are going to be, you know, playing with Betamax 20 years after the standard died. Um, you know, at that point, I think really when you're looking at a handguard in terms of the features and the accessory attachment points, you're beginning to narrow your choices significantly, but you're leading yourself to a destination that should have everything you need. So, you know, material, I think we've all gone over that a number of times there aren't really a great many choices. And sometimes uh, your choice in manufacturer and feature and accessory attachment points is going to eliminate your choice of materials because they only use one material and that's all there is. So then uh, in terms of features, that's a big driver. You know, are you going to have one of the more contemporary handguards that I guess dispenses with a lot of things that people once thought were necessary. They may only have a piece of uh, rail uh, right at the the back of the handguard or the the forend closest to your receiver so that you can have a little bit of an extension for mounting optics. And then they may only have another piece of rail at the very, you know, you know, opposite end of the handguard or forend so that you can mount you know, iron sights, you know, it could be a quad rail. It could be any number of different form factors in between, and it could have different kinds of features milled into the handguard itself. You know, do you have a a sling QD point on your handguard? Do you have, you know, a bipod mount on the handguard? I haven't seen that before, but that would be kind of nice for some. Um, And so once you get past those kinds of considerations, once you've been steered to that point where you pick a handguard and you've chosen the form factor your accessories are going to attach, really it's a matter of deciding, you know, what's driving my choices in terms of those accessories. You know, do I need M-Lock at, you know, only four positions on the handguard or eight or am I going to try to get 16 positions with a bunch of, you know, intermediate positions in between those, you know, it really depends. Uh, I'm sure that that handguard is out there somewhere, whatever it is that you want. So when it comes down to it, I think that you're going to go in a direction driven by needs that really I can't guide you on. Uh, certainly I, if you wanted to tell me what your needs are, I might be able to answer a question, but, there's too many choices to be able to really narrow it down. So I think once you have considered some of those elements, you'll be where you need to be in terms of what's available to you. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've assembled the receiver. We put on a handguard. We've got our gas block in place. Um, obviously, 
you're going to have to put iron sights. So we're just going to call that a given, and I'll accept everybody saying, yes, that's the way it goes. I think the next thing that you need to consider is the bolt carrier group. You know, the 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 times have changed from having a parkerized, you know, bolt carrier group that you didn't really have a bunch of choices on to getting out there and being really kind of on the bleeding edge of technology in terms of materials, in terms of coatings, in terms of uh, form, in terms of weight. Um, it, 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 it's just all over the place. Um, you know, I think the one thing that everybody can probably agree on is that you want proper gas key installation. Uh, you want the appropriate bolts uh, installed, uh, the right kind, the right quality. Um, you want materials that are um, going to stand up to the wear and tear, which at a minimum uh, implicates uh, certain requirements. I think most quality manufacturers are going to make your steel um, of the right kind. I'm going to throw out the numbers because it, it really doesn't matter to me what the mill spec is, but I think, it, what is it, 9150 on the bolt carrier group and like 158C for the bolt itself. Whatever the case may be, you can find those specific kinds of materials all over the Internet that will allow you to vet any bolt you're going to buy. But past that, there is an enormous breadth of choices in terms of how it's coded and how it's ultimately shaped. Uh, it used to be that you had kind of the neutered bolts that weren't the full auto M16 bolts. And the only reason that that was really relevant is because the full auto bolts were heavier bolts. And so that kind of changed the way your, you know, rifles timing worked. You know, it, it changed some of the characteristics in terms of how it performed. And so I think a lot of people liked the idea of heavier bolts, but they were typically parkerized. And so there was, I think, a very strong movement to get away from that. And I've seen bolts that were chromed and I've seen bolts that are, um, nickel boron and nickel teflon and titanium and the titanium ones are like the gold looking ones i think and i think those are pretty slick um you have the nitrided ones i mean and i'm sure that just in each one of those categories of coatings there's many more options there's there's a larger array of choices that you have and so you can be driven by any number of things, but typically uh, the idea is, is that you want something that is going to be very resistant to the forces that are acting upon it. So heat and debris, you don't want carbon to build up. You want them to be easy to clean. Uh, lubricity is kind of the big keyword, I think, in a lot of these because you have a bolt that's sliding back and forth essentially in – um, a very high friction environment. Uh, it's essentially riding within a, a shell of aluminum. And so all of that force and friction, uh, you know, is being imparted on the materials there. Now, I'm not going to say aluminum is going to damage steel, but I think certainly steel could damage aluminum. 
Um, either way, uh, you add some carbon and debris and fouling in there, and you certainly don't want to gum up the works. And so that's the idea of lubricity and easily cleanable. So there's any number of components that are going to go into where you're going with the bolt carrier group. So, you know, once you've picked a coating, you've got your materials uh, that you're satisfied with, whatever that might be. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at uh, basically bolts that are either uh, formed to be low mass or um, formed to be, I guess, used for specific purposes. Uh, for instance, uh, some of the PDW stocks have proprietary bolts that are changed in ways that allow them to function with a much shorter stock than one would expect for the rifle. Um, uh, I haven't really seen high mass. You know, people trying to make, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, my, my 357 SIG rifle has a, a bolt that they try to put more mass into to slow it down. So, Yes, I would say then in that case, yes. But, you know, there are some things that are uh, going to drive your choice in those regards. If you're going to go with a lightweight build, then you may go with low mass components all over the place. Um, certainly, if you're trying to tune a rifle because for whatever reason it is not performing the way that you want, you might be going to lower mass bolts. Of course, there's a whole array of changes that you can make to the rifle in many areas that will affect those things and so you know I, I i try to caution people not to apply every solution they hear all at once because you'll never figure out what's fixing the problem or what's causing more problems so but you know i think that kind of covers the the nuts and bolts of what your bolt carrier group is going to require of you um so let's 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 recap. So you've taken your upper receiver, you've installed the dust cover, you've installed the Ford Assist. Uh, if you have an A1 or A2 upper receiver, you've installed the rear side assembly. Uh, you've prepared the receiver to attach the barrel to it. And while I didn't talk about it, I think it's kind of self-evident. There's only one way to orient the barrel uh, to the receiver. There is a very clear notch at the very top of your receiver and a very clear pin on the barrel extension of your barrel, and the pin goes into the notch. And so not really many other ways that the two are going to mate. But um, at that point, uh, you've assembled your uh, upper receiver by tightening down the barrel nut to the proper torque, You've installed your gas block, you've installed your gas tube, you've secured it with the gas tube pin, you've installed your handguard, whatever the case may be in terms of what you picked, and you've dropped in your bolt. Now, the charging handle is kind of, you know, once again, everyone needs one. Most people like what they like. Uh, I'm not going to belabor the point of what your choices are. Um, they're all over. Um, but you're going to have to have a charging handle, and so that's going to be installed uh, along with your bolt. And I think at that point your upper receiver is done. Anything you can think of that we missed in that? No, I don't. I, I think you. I think we've covered it from, you know, all the way to the, uh, 
tip of the buffer tube to the uh, to the end of the barrel there, except for maybe a flash hider or a muzzle device. You know what? That's true. Let's talk about the muzzle device. Um, so the muzzle device, I, I have people ask that we do a muzzle device show, and it is such a difficult topic. Uh, I can't remember who. I, I don't want to not give proper credit where due, and I don't want to improperly give credit if it's not deserved. But um, one of the reliable and intrepid resources for the AR builders put on a two-part muzzle device paper where they shot everything and they tried to figure out, you know, what had, you know, the highest impact on felt recoil and jump and all these other factors. Um, I, it's, it's a hard topic. There's too many choices. I, I don't know. I think there was at least 70 different options put on the table between the two papers. So I'm not going to tell you what you need and I'm not really going to go into any depth in what the options are. But suffice it to say, once you've picked a muzzle device, I think that there are some things to consider. You know, the first is how are we going to, you know, index it and secure it? The um, crush washer is how you you how you assemble or, or uh, secure the pretty standard bird cage flash hider. Um, that crush washer is the means of uh you know securing many of the other commercially available products uh you have peel washers and split washers and i have a a kit that i got off the brownell site uh, that is a series of um washers of varying widths and you basically you you index your um device where you want to with the specific width of washer necessary for the proper alignment. And then you torque it down. I don't think that there is a specific torque spec because many of the washers are designed with a particular approach to installation. Um, for instance, on those you know washer sets that I was talking about, um, you basically hand tighten the muzzle device so that it is I'd say an eighth of a turn off its true uh, orientation and then you snug it that last eighth onto that washer um, you know the crush washers of course when you begin the process of crushing it down once it's indexed there should be enough tension or force there one of the things that I have come to do on the installation of my muzzle devices is to put Loctite on them. While I you know, haven't ever seen anything that would cause me to do so on a barrel nut, um, I have had a host muzzle device for a uh, suppressor. Uh, have the device come loose trying to remove the suppressor. And so to me, that's an indicator of something that torque alone isn't addressing and so a little bit of blue loctite is the, the route that i took to get that done um you know i think another important thing is to make sure that you're properly indexing whatever it is you're attaching um here's an example uh, uh some of the kind of the birdcage flash hiders have uh, a section of the muzzle device that doesn't have slits in it 
and that is oriented down so that as you fire, you don't have any uh, exhaust gases directed downward and kicking up dust or debris like dirt into your face. I think that makes perfect sense. Now, I don't know. I suppose you could justify it being on the top so that the flash doesn't obscure your sight picture, but I don't really think that's the way it works. Um, when it comes down to it, I think most manufacturers of the higher-end muzzle devices are going to tell you what they think you should use in terms of a washer. So I'd follow that guidance. Um, if there's one that indicates that there is no real you know, proper timing or index point, that it can just be tightened down to whatever, there may be a, um, a torque spec that is expected. You know, follow their guidance. Other than that, you know, I think really the muzzle device, provided that it is of the same caliber uh, that your barrel's chambered in or bigger, uh, you're going to be okay. And uh, and don't think it hasn't happened that somebody figured out a way to thread a muzzle device that had a smaller diameter opening onto the end of a barrel that shot a larger caliber. Um, <laughs> I'm sure we could find places where that's happened. Um, but, you know, I think that covers it. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to applaud you, Mike. You know, the, the rookie catches the, the muzzle device. The one thing I didn't have in my show notes, so I, I think you get kudos. This goes to show I was paying attention the whole time, despite being intimidated by building these things from scratch. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad somebody was paying attention. Um, I, I think that pretty much covers it. Any thoughts? Anything that really kind of comes to mind? No, I think it's actually um, a pretty thorough discussion there. I mean, I, at at that point, I think that there's a lot of uh, visual aids that people can look up, whether it's YouTube or schematics or you know instruction manuals or whatnot. That can be a companion resource to the you know the thoughts you just expounded upon. So those two things taken together, I think, are probably a fairly good starting point for the novice builder to people who have done a few of them. And you know, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to say this. You know, Mike and I both have a very similar educational background. We both attended law school. Um, you know, we're taught about an order of priority, an order of authority in the sources that we rely on. So I would tell you that if you're going to go to YouTube, it's not a bad place to learn. It's not a bad place to find information, but do not um, go to, you know, Ted's Hillbilly Hollow and, you know, take uh, advice from a guy that's going to use a monkey wrench on an AR. Do go to a manufacturer on that manufacturer's products. Um, don't go to a, you know, self-professed expert with no um, verifiable credentials and give him more reliance than you would a gunsmith who is going to hold themselves out as being properly trained by an accredited program. You know, just use your common sense. Sometimes it's not the first video that comes in the search that you should be looking at. Um, so, you know, get your Google foo on and make sure that you use some common sense when you're trying to figure out who you should trust and who you should rely on. Now I'm going to, plug a book 
And this is one that was plugged to me by someone that I trust. But it's the uh, the Competitive AR-15 Builder's Guide. It is a book by a man named Glenn D. Zedeker. That's spelled Z-E-D as in Z-I-K-E-R. Uh, Glenn has written a number of books. They litter my shelf. Uh, you may even be able to see them in some of our old YouTube uh, videos. But he writes very well. He writes um, very um, expressively and it's easy to follow but he is a competitive shooter he is uh, a winning competitor and he is someone who has a great deal of experience and uh, the credentials and the um, results to back that up so it's uh, one of the resources that I turn to uh, at the very beginning and it's one that I still rely on whenever I need to clarify things for myself so don't be afraid to go out and build yourself a library of good resources so that you will always have a place to go if you can't find your answer on the Internet. And I guess with that, Mike, I'm done. you have any final thoughts, any questions, anything I failed to cover? No, I think that, that about does it. No questions here. All right. Well, I'll close this out then. I'll tell you to or ask that you send us any questions or comments to ar15.podcast at gmail.com. We would ask that you subscribe and listen to the AR15 podcast for free on iTunes or on Stitcher and leave us a review so the show can place higher in the searches for potential listeners. Also, share your pics with us on Instagram at at ar15podcast or tag your pictures with hashtag ar15podcast. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, That's facebook.com forward slash ar15podcast. Uh, also, don't forget to uh, use our Amazon affiliate link at ar-15podcast.com. Uh, the Firearms Radio Network has a number of awesome podcasts on there, so if you want to find something else in the firearms world, check them out and see if there's something that's going to blow a wind up your skirt. So that being said, I think we're going to wrap this up, and we will have one more scheduled episode in our Builder series which is going to be finishing our build. So uh, absent a compelling call to do more, we'll be finishing up pretty soon. And I guess with that, Mike, we're going to call this done. Take care, everyone. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.